Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape the space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. This here, my friends, is a special episode. For a bunch of reasons, I should say. One thing that makes this episode special is that it's inspired by a patron of the pod, Tony Gonzalez. Now, Tony began supporting my project a bit after he heard a conversation I had with Johnny Spate, a.k.a. Johnny Shiitake, the Portlandian strip club DJ. And when I reached out to Tony to thank him for his support, he requested, humbly I should say, that I talk with more people with you know, like unique kind of funky jobs. In particular, he wanted me to talk with a professional video gamer. Now, Tony, I gotta be honest with you, I haven't been able to pin down the gamer yet. But today's conversation is with an even rarer bird, a video game broadcaster. So until I get that gamer lined up, this one's for you, Tony. And if you, my dear friends, if you've been listening to For a Living, If you've learned something, if you've been feeling connected to our conversations, then let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com slash for a living and enjoy the rewards of supporting this podcast. One reward, of course, is that you get to request guests and help to guide the content of these conversations. Now this episode, indeed all of season eight, is sponsored by my friends at one of Chicago's most inimitable restaurants, Cookies and Carnitas. And it's kind of cool. Like Cookies and Carnitas wants to use this here platform not to advertise for their own insane menu, but to show their support for other restaurants in their neighborhood, the uptown neighborhood in Chicago. Now, Uptown isn't one of those, like, destination dining neighborhoods, but it should be. It really should be. You know, there's so many innovative, funky restaurants there. And this week, Cookies and Carnitas advises me to give a little bit of love to Beard and Belly. Beard and Belly was founded in 2015 by chefs Kyle Schrager and Jim Torres. I hope I got Kyle's name right. I'm not convinced that I did. It's a total Chicago success story. Kyle, the beard, and Jim, the belly. And you can visit their website and you'll see who the beard and who the belly is, I assure you. Kyle and Jim were running the kitchen at the Long Room, which is this killer north side craft beer joint. Been there once, actually. So people started coming into the Long Room for food and staying for the beer. So Kyle and Jim, they took the gamble and they opened their own joint. And my friends, their gamble paid off. Beard and Belly is winning. They won the Best Grilled Cheese in Chicago Award. Their mac and cheese has been donned as top three in the fine city of Chicago. And Time Out Chicago put their burger firmly in the top ten. How is this possible? How is it even remotely possible that they can have among the best grilled cheese, mac and cheese, and burger in the city? Is that magic? 
Is it voodoo that they do? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it is. More likely, though, it's just damn good ingredients. And that's why Cookies and Carnitas wants to shout out Beard and Belly. It's because Cookies and Carnitas supports local joints who take pride in using fresh, delicious ingredients. So if you're anywhere near Uptown, head over to Beard and Belly at 6157 North Broadway, just a couple blocks north of Cookies and Carnitas, grab a grilled cheese and give the beard and or the belly my warmest regards from Berlin. Now, from Broadway to broadcasting, yep, I did that. I'm doing it. Today, I have the pleasure of diving into conversation with Mike Winnick, a.k.a. Darf Mike. Mike's an esports broadcaster. He's a host and a commentator and a hell of a fella. He's lived around the world on boat and on land, but he found his place in providing context and weaving narratives in the multi-billion dollar world of counter-strike global offensive. And if you, like me, know nothing whatsoever of this vast alternate universe of esports, well, I guess that's all the more reason to join me in conversation with Darf Mike. Mike Winnick, a.k.a. Darf Mike. Welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? Uh, well, the answer to that question really depends on who's asking most of the time, and specifically their age most of the time. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the short of it is that I'm an esports broadcaster, specifically for a game called Counter-Strike, more specifically for Counter-Strike Global Offensive. And when someone asks, what does that mean? I do commentary and I do analyst desks for competitive video games, basically. I am the Joe Buck or Troy Aikman equivalent in a game called Counter-Strike. Uh, and then if you want to know what Counter-Strike is, which is usually the next question, Counter-Strike is a 5v5 competitive shooting game. It is one of the oldest Con consistent video games and certainly i think the oldest consistent competitive video game still played counter-strike has existed in some form since 1999 it's changed a lot over the years there's new iterations but the basic idea is that five players are attacking five players are defending the defenders have to defend two bomb sites uh, and prevent the attackers from getting onto the sites and planting a bomb and the attackers have to plant the bomb and then see it through to detonation without it being diffused. And then you switch at the half and rinse and repeat. It's, uh, it's a relatively straightforward concept. There's a million varieties of nuance and, and depth on top of that. But that is, that is the skinny uh, of what I do, I guess. I appreciate the skinny, but it's, it's, it's kind of a big old fat deal, isn't it? The esports space. For, for our listeners here who aren't gamers, can you talk a little bit about, about the appeal of esports to you? Absolutely. For me, it's competition. It's competition and it's stories and it's narratives. I myself am a distinctly, profoundly, quite mediocre player of Counter-Strike. <laughs> mediocre is even being generous. I'm not good at the game. Uh, I've gotten better over the years, but I'm not good at the game. I discovered it way too late in life to be, you know, a, a twitchy 16-year-old. I didn't find Counter-Strike until uh, my early 20s, which, uh, you know, uh, put me out to pasture by that point. So 
what I love about the game is competition at its core. It's the same as any sport in that regard, any competition in that regard, chess, uh, football, any sort of competition, right? It's two teams pitting their wills against each other to prove mastery over the game, to prove mastery over their opponent, to uh, achieve victory. And that that's the core. That's the root of any competition. And that applies to any eSport. That applies to any sport. But then for me, the appeal of, of eSports in particular is, uh, I mean, I grew up gaming. A lot of people from my generation grew up gaming in some way, shape, or form. It's become this huge cultural phenomena. And when I realized that there was a way to take that knowledge, that experience, that community, and, and, and take it to the next level with esports. It was something that, that really captured my imagination. And I love building stories. I love performance. I was, uh, I've always been a performer in some capacity, and broadcasting is that in a different sense. It's taking those skills, it's taking that ability, and it's applying it to the competition, applying it to the game, highlighting the narratives of the players, telling their stories, doing interviews, doing desk segments, building them up, building up why the audience should care about a particular match, about a particular player, about a particular play, and then seeing that narrative come to fruition before your eyes. So it's it's a lot of different things that I love sort of melded into one concept one thing and so i just i just adore it it's a wonderful time well it brings me tremendous joy to know that you're having a great time you deserve the joy particularly in these trying times i have to ask you though like how did you get on the path of being a a broadcaster a commentator a host for counter-strike yeah um I mean, because it's kind of an unusual gig, right? There's not yes. there's not too many of you out there. So I'm particularly curious about your path. There are there are maybe 30 to 50 people in the world who, well, probably more if you consider other languages. English language, there are probably 30 to 50 people in the world who do what I do, some degree of full-time-ish. The way I got started, I was between jobs. Uh, I had left school the previous year uh, without completing it because it was not for me. And I was working in, uh, sailing. I was working on a boat, uh, sailing a boat for tourists in Annapolis. And I was between jobs because our summer season had ended and I had been looking for other jobs. A gig on our racing boat in the Caribbean had fallen through. Uh, and I was waiting for my new job, which was working in a retail store as uh, their backend customer service to start. But I had, two weeks before the new job started. And I saw a post on Reddit, on the r slash global offensive subreddit, which is the Counter-Strike subreddit, uh, about a tournament taking place in Philadelphia called Fragadelphia. Uh, It's a grassroots tournament. It's Fragadelphia 10. It was the 10th one they'd done. Uh, And they had a post saying, you know, we've got these teams coming out. We're going to be doing it here in Philadelphia. We have spectators. Come on out. Anyone who wants to come through, sign up for your team, come out to the event, check things out. And they had a little footnote in there that uh, the producer, Rob, said something about, oh, and we'll have open caster tryouts if you want to give it a try. And I had been watching Counter-Strike for... A couple of years at that point, I discovered it and, and sort of voraciously devoured some some VODs, uh, which are recordings of previous matches, and then started to watch the live games and started to follow tournaments and teams. And I'd always thought that casting seemed like something I might actually be good at and might enjoy, but I had no idea how one even approaches getting started in it. 
right? It was sort of one of those thoughts in the back of your mind of, oh, this could actually be kind of neat. But how do you start on that road? No clue. So I see this post. It's taking place while I'm not working, you know, before my new job starts. And I have a lot of friends in Philadelphia because that's where I had gone to school. And I thought, what the hell? I'll go up. I'll see some people. I'll go check out this tournament. I'll try out the casting. So I responded to that Reddit post and I said, you know, can I have some more details about the caster challenge? And the response I got was basically, if you come out, we'll throw you on the mic for a game. If you suck, we'll take you off the mic. If you don't, you can stay on and cast for a while. <laughs> uh-huh. So I showed up to Fragadelphia 10 which entertainingly is known in post as Freezadelphia because that year they had uh, part of the venue was in a warehouse that uh, they did not realize did not have any sort of heating or HVAC system. So it was January in Philadelphia and there was snow on the ground and the warehouse was freezing cold. So players were playing fully bundled up in winter coats and scarves. They were giving out those little chemical hand warmers for free. Players were stuffing them in their headphones, in their sleeves, like just anything to stay warm enough to actually be able to play. And then I, I, I showed up. I had no idea what was going on, really. I sat down and watched for a little while, checked things out. And then I talked to somebody and said, I'm here to try casting. And they said, okay. And they sat me down at a microphone and a setup. And I cast the B-Stream. And I cast two and a half games of the B-Stream uh, with a few different partners. And I really loved it. But then I had plans with a friend, so I had to leave. And they told me before I left that I should go talk to Rob, who was the producer whose Reddit post I had previously talked to. So I talked to Rob. He then brought me back for further events, little local tournaments that they ran that they called Point Fives. Uh, I started doing some casting there. I came back for the next Fragadelphia at Fragadelphia 11. This was all uh, volunteer at this point. And I started to really, really love what I was doing and enjoying it. And I got a lot of positive feedback. People were very encouraging early on. People helped talk me through what I needed to do if I wanted to actually pursue this, what the paths were for that. Uh, and started casting more and more and more, started getting paid for some gigs, started getting signed on. The way I took that from being relatively amateur to being more professional is I participated in something called the ESEA Next Big Caster Challenge, where basically a lot of their games were freely open for anyone to broadcast. And if you signed up for the Caster Challenge and were approved, you broadcast the games over the course of a season. And then at the end, it would be whittled down by their back-end people to a few finalists. And then a community fan vote would uh, choose a winner. And, uh, and I won that season and went out to Dallas to cast the Global Challenge, which was the first event I was at with real international teams, with sort of top-end professional teams. And that was really the jump from sort of amateur semi-pro to this is something I'm really pursuing as a career. Thank you, Mike, so much. That was awesome. And and you know me. So you know I love a story. Mm. And you know me. So you know I always have lots of questions. Can I ask you a couple of questions about that narrative you shared? Please do. First, like, you said that you love it. What do you love about it? Like, how do you fall in love with casting? It's a lot of the things that I think naturally suit my skill set in terms of being improvisation, because you don't know what's going to happen. You're reacting to things live. In terms of being able to build in jokes and humor, in terms of being able to build narratives and storylines, to be part of someone else's story as well and build that up, I think is really cool. And one of the greatest things about being in, I think, in my position in North America is that I get to follow 
teams and players from their very beginnings to see how far they can go. You know, some of the players who I'm casting now who are on professional teams, I cast them back at that first Fragadelphia 10 in 2017 playing as 16 or 17 year olds with their buddies you know not at all serious not at all professional just just sort of getting their start and I've been able to follow their stories and their narratives and get to know them as people and see them grow up and see some of them I've met their families because they used to have their their parents bring them to tournaments because they weren't old enough to get there themselves and it's just yeah that narrative, that growth, those storylines, that's really what I've always loved about broadcasting and what I love about uh, about any of it. It, it, it's, it is narrative creation. I mean, so much of it is just what the players do. But we on the broadcast, we in, in the content that we build help to tell that story. And that, that's the way I view myself in pretty much all of my roles is to some degree or another, I am a storyteller. So... Tell me this story, if, 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 if you would be so kind. Like, what's the story, what's the biographical narrative of you in performance? Like, I know mm. you to be a bit of a ham. <laughs> I know you got some moxie in you. Yeah. But did you have a performance background going into your career as a broadcaster? Y- yes and no. Um I mean, again, as as you know me, for for your audience that doesn't know me, uh, I am a born bullshitter. Uh, <laughs> I I always have been to some degree. the The stories of of baby Mike uh, using words uh, to get out of things are are well told. Apparently, when I was a wee little guy, I'm talking like two or three. Anytime my mom got mad at me because I inevitably did something naughty, I would apparently just go up to her, hug her around the knees, and say. I love you, mom, Hmm. which uh, hard to be mad at a two or three year old after they do that. Yeah. So, you know, I've always been relatively good at uh, performance, uh, so to speak. But I've also done theater, did theater starting in elementary school, through middle school, through high school, uh, always did that was in the was in the school plays, was in the was in the shows, was in drama classes. In college, I was the mascot. (laughs) Wait, Uh, wait, wait, really? Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was the mascot for the University of Pennsylvania for a number of years. You're a fight. You were the fighting Quaker. Yeah. Do you know what that looks like? I'll <laughs> send you a photo. I've seen the fight. I need to see a photo of you in the fighting Quaker getup. I did not know. I love oh, this. I'll get you a photo. I was the Quaker, which was a great outlet for performance. The primary role of the Quaker was to. <laughs> go to sports games, right? Football, yeah, basketball, yeah. other engagements, things like that. When I started being the Quaker, I did not know how football worked at all because I grew up not in the United States of America. Yeah. So I had no idea how a football game worked. <laughs> uh, I was an American who did not know the rules of football in the slightest. So when I first started mascotting, one of the other mascots, there were five of us at the time, would have to follow me around and tell me what different things meant. You know, they'd say, we just got a touchdown. Celebrate. Uh, someone is injured. Kneel. Uh, uh, you know, they're kicking a field goal. Look nervous. Until I learned the rules and understood what was going on on the field. 
But that was performance. That was very physical, very active performance. Couldn't talk. So it was all physicality. It was dancing. It was clapping. It was high-fiving people. It was uh, invariably either scaring the heck out of kids or them loving me. It was, you know, running, jumping, leaping. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And that was performance. That's what I did in, in college. And then in my work after college, after leaving college, uh, I worked on the boat, which was all customer-facing customer service. We would take up to 40, 50 head out on this sailing schooner for a couple of hours. And as the crew, we were not only sailing the boat, we were telling stories, we were entertaining, we were giving facts, we were giving tour, we were making a lot of things up to entertain ourselves. We had some pretty outrageous tall tales going on that boat. Yeah. Uh, Boat life, you have to. We have to. After you tell the same stories three million times, you got to start adding twists. Yeah. But that was performance in some other way. You know, that was speaking, being on your toes, having conversations. It, so everything I think has built into that, even if it's not as directly performance as you would think. I also did some community theater while I was in Annapolis. It's just always been something that I've enjoyed somewhere where I've thrived as well. And somewhere where I really, ironically, I think, by putting on a bit of a face and be maybe being a version of myself or a different person or something like that, I can feel more myself. Hmm. So through these years as a performer in various genres, it seems, you've cultivated like a voice, a personality, a character. How would you describe your voice your your character as a caster mm. it changes a little bit depending on the role that's needed from me on a broadcast i usually fill one of two roles mm -hmm. if things are going well i'm either a play-by-play -play commentator which is the person who is giving you sort of the the actual play-by-play -play, the punches of the round the things that are happening uh, that's in contrast to a color commentator who is giving in more of the background detail, why something is happening. The way I describe it is the play-by-play -play draws the lines, the color fills them in. Okay. Or I'm a host where I'm on a desk with analysts and I'm trying to set up the show, keep it running, bring up different graphics segments, talk about the game before the game, talk about the game after the game, and really set up my analysts for success. So those two roles, which are most of what I'm doing these days, demand different versions. But my voice in general overall, I'd say there's a lot of humor to it. Uh, I do a lot of jokes, wordplay, puns, I'll inevitably get worked in there. You want to have the high energy. It depends on the games. And I'm definitely not the highest energy of commentators, but I think I strike a good middle ground in that. It's a lot of uh, excitement, hype, joy. I think, the, I think the best moments in a broadcast are when you can feel the genuine excitement and joy of the person who's talking. Hmm. Uh, and that's in Counter-Strike. That's in any sport. You know, those, those moments of infectious energy where whatever the broadcaster is feeling just bubbles over, where a truly incredible play happens, and you can feel that everyone experiencing it recognizes that, those are the moments that I really strive for. But I think most people who listen to me would probably point to the humor as being sort of one of, one of the defining characteristics that sets me apart from some of the other broadcasters to some degree. Yeah, you're definitely good like that, Mike. And I, in preparation for our conversation, 
Uh, although I should confess, I, I, I rarely do much research <laughs> in, in the lead up to these conversations, but I'm such a fool when it comes to esports. I watched a little bit of, of casting mm. and I found that in addition to humor usage, there's also, it seems to me, a lot of trash talk, a lot of smack talk, <laughs> some good old fashioned ribbing in the mix. What's the role of trash talk and smack talk in your approach to casting? That's so much about who your partner is. Okay. Banter, especially between partners, is so much about who your partner is, the familiarity there, and your you know respective roles to each other. You don't want to do anything that's mean-spirited, for sure. You want it to be fun. Again, some of it can be personal relationships. There are players where when I talk about, you know, having known people for five years, there are players who I've known for those five years. And I know I can absolutely roast them when they make a mistake on a broadcast <laughs> and they'll understand. And it's about doing everything with a wink and a smile. Yeah. There are times where a team is making such bad mistakes and it's playing so below your expectations for them that it's very hard not to just rip into them. Yeah. And there are times where they need to be ripped into. <laughs> one, of, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about broadcasting in general is that people aren't stupid. You can't serve them a shit pie and tell them it's a, a sandwich. They're going to know. So if a team is absolutely stinking it up in the game and looking awful to your expectations for them, you can't ignore it. Obviously, it depends on the expectations. If a top 10 team in the world lays an absolute stinker, they deserve to be called out for the absolute stinker because they're getting paid an outrageous amount of money to play the game and to perform. If an amateur team of college kids lays up an absolute stinker, whatever. We're not expecting glory of them necessarily. But yeah. Poking fun at plays, poking fun at situations, recognizing when there's an error. That's the flip side of recognizing when there's greatness, when there's a good play, when someone makes the right move. If everything is positive, nothing is positive. If everything is hype, nothing is hype. So you need to point out the low moments. You need to point out the mistakes. You need to point out the situations that could have been capitalized on in order to demonstrate how important the big moments are, how important the successes are. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I keep on thinking about like the best broadcasters, like from my childhood watching sports and like the role they played in creating that mood and having some fun and talking some trash. Like who were your casting influencers? Do you have like a Mount Rushmore of broadcasters, you know, like Costas, Cassell, <laughs> Bob Uecker, Harry Carey, like who do you look to for guidance? See, here's the thing, is that I did not grow up watching sports, mm. really, at all. Um, I'm very late to this in terms of competition and broadcast. So a lot of my influences and the voices that I aspire to or that I appreciate and admire aren't sort of the classic pantheon, you know, not the John Maddens or the, the Cassells or the... I didn't watch them. Yeah. I don't know them. I've gone back and I've watched clips and I've seen moments and I've seen, you know, pieces and, and uh, things here or there and I can appreciate them for what they did, but they're not part of my personal lore. So a lot of my inspirations, the people who admire the people whose voices I look up to are much more contemporary to me. 
they're some from the previous generation of of CS broadcasters because that's something that I've listened to a lot of the guys who really started in the the mid 2010s who really made their name there a lot of whom are still working and who I've worked with at this point but they're not they're not names that are going to mean anything to you I don't think well, just for the sake of it, though, because I sure will link our listeners to some of your work, if you'd be so kind. But maybe it would be cool to link them to a couple of casts from some people who you really admire their work. So sure. maybe drop a name or two, and then we'll link to them in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the sort of previous generation, to, to one or two generations ago, of broadcasters are really where I, I developed my my ear and my palate. Richard Lewis is a guy who's been a huge inspiration to me. I've been fortunate to work with him a couple of times in this last year before he has sort of kind of retired. He's got a really strong voice. He's an excellent host, probably I mean one of the best hosts ever in esports. He's a top tier esports journalist as well. And I really admire his approach to broadcasting. When I started hosting, he gave me some really good advice as well. So I'm very grateful. Can I ask you what advice he gave you? Sure. There's a lot of it. He he basically I was doing a hosting gig and it was the second time I'd ever hosted anything and it was a much bigger professional jump from the first time I had hosted anything and I asked him for his tips because he had worked at the top end of of CS hosting for a long time. And he recorded a 15-minute voice note and sent it to me and it just was sort of a lot of his philosophies. He's the one who told me about, you know, your audience will know, you can't just you can't lie to them straight up. The, the, the audience is going to know. If something's going wrong, you know, explain it, couch it, but don't pretend they're not seeing what's in front of their face. He also told me some tips about, uh, especially on a broadcast desk, this is more to the broadcast desk as opposed to commentary. One of the best things that you can do as a desk is give the audience something that they can look for within a game. If you tell them a play that's going to happen or something that the team is going to rely on or some keynote and the audience can then watch and understand it themselves and see it live happen, they're going to feel smart and they're going to like you because you made them feel smart and they're going to feel connected into the game. He talks about uh, setting up your analysts. Ideally, as a host, one of the things that you want to do is you want to make everybody around you shine as much as possible. Did Richard Lewis have a caster name as you do? Way back, I think he went by Gonzo. Uh-huh. As in Gonzo journalist, because he got his start in journalism and still still is a journalist. But no, he's gone by Richard Lewis for, for years. He's not really known by the other names. There's uh other broadcasters who I really admire. Uh a guy Sadakist. Uh his name's Matthew Trivet. He's probably the greatest play by play in esports, I think probably ever, in sort of what is considered the golden era of broadcasting to some degree back in 2015, 16, 17, he was the person who emerged as one of the strongest play-by-play voices. His wordplay is unparalleled. He has some of the most iconic moments on broadcasts ever. Really a phenomenal, a phenomenal voice. Very admirable. He's tough to take lessons from because he is such a genius at it that you can't really model the way you would prepare or think about things the way he does because a lot of it is just the way his brain works. There's a lot of people I really admire. Uh, Moses, 
Jason O'Toole, uh, goes by Moses, is uh, really, I think, one of the most complete broadcasters in terms of he's worked as an analyst, he's worked as a color commentator. Uh, I don't know if he's ever done direct hosting, but he certainly could do it. He's one of the most polished professional people I've ever seen on a broadcast. He can do anything, roll with the punches, you know, do banter, do, do bits, do whatever you need him to do. Uh, and he's someone who I recently got a chance to work with, who I uh, really enjoyed getting to meet. I think I modeled some of my work on him specifically because I just admire the degree of polish and unflappability that he brings to a broadcast in a big way. Nice. Well, we'll link to Richard Lewis and to Sadakist and to Moses. Mm. But before we go on, I forgive me, I'm sure you've had to explain this more than once in your life. You are Darf Mike. Sure. Care to explain? Yeah. Um, so the story on my game name is that I was 12 or 13 in seventh grade. I remember I was in seventh grade and a friend was showing me a game called RuneScape, which I don't know if you're familiar with RuneScape. Um, nope. It is a MMO, uh, a massively multiplayer online game akin to a, a World of Warcraft. Are you familiar with World of Warcraft? Vaguely. Okay. So it is a game where lots of people play in a world. There's a ton of different players. There's competition between those players. There's cooperation with those players. It's, it's kind of like a giant fantasy sandbox. And a friend was showing me RuneScape, and I was starting RuneScape, and I was making my name. And I said, what should I make my name? Because in RuneScape, everyone has to have a unique username. You can't have duplicates. And he said, just put the word DARF in front of your name, no one ever picks it. So I did. So that's Darf, D-A-R-F. Uh, uh -huh. I became Darf Mike. He was Darf James. Shoutouts to James Vasey if he's listening to this somehow, some way. And I became Darf Mike. And he was right because I've gotten it in every platform since then. I got it on Xbox Live. I got it on Steam. I got it on Twitter. I got it. I didn't get it on Instagram. Someone out there stole Darf Mike on Instagram, and that's not cool. Uh, don't appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, but I've had the name on every platform. Huh. And so I just kept using it uh, because it was just my video game name. You know, it wasn't anything serious. And now it's my professional name <laughs> because that's how it works. Uh, and there's a lot of people who are like that in esports. It's one of the funniest things. Some people come up with a moniker when they're 14 and then it sticks for the rest of their lives. Oh, that can be rough, I suppose. Yeah. You know, some people attempt rebrands, but yeah. for others, just keep it. Hey, yeah. Mike, in, in discussing um, Sadokist, uh, Matthew Trivet, I believe it was, mm -hmm. you, you alluded to his preparation for the broadcasts. And it got me thinking about what role research plays in your casting analysis. Do you have like, study methods that you could walk me through like how do you feel prepped and confident to go into a broadcast at your best it again depends on the role that you're occupying and the time that you have and the familiarity you have with the subject so for me if i'm doing a north american tournament there's not a lot of preparation specifically needed because I'm so ingrained in the scene and so aware of the happenings that generally speaking, I know everything that I need to know without needing to do a whole lot of prep for it. 
But with international tournaments, especially with tournaments where maybe teams are coming from lesser-known regions, uh, we don't always get the Asian teams over to tournaments. So sometimes when they're coming through, you've got to dig into them a little bit and figure out who's who's what and who's playing where and what's happening. When you get teams from Australia, uh, that's a scene that I know a little bit more about just because I'm friends online with some of the Australian broadcasters, so I see a lot of their conversations about it. But when you get that melding of different regions, there are a few resources that are huge assets within Counter-Strike specifically. There's a website called HLTV, uh, which stands for Half-Life TV, because the original Counter-Strike was a mod for the game Half-Life. HLTV is a repository of facts, statistics, games, post-match VODs, recordings, basically, uh, statistics from those games, uh, player ratings, rankings, team rankings. They have the most well-regarded world ranking of teams. It's a huge asset, and I think we sometimes take it for granted up until we do work in another game and realize that they don't have that same asset. There's also a website called Liquipedia that is uh, another huge asset for the history of the game. There is a Counter-Strike version. There's also a version for a lot of different competitive titles. And they have teams. They have records of who's been on those teams, when they joined, when they left. Coaches, again, match histories, achievements, tournaments they've played, tournaments they've won things like that. And that's a massive asset. So that's one approach to research. That's the, the the baseline is looking up teams on HLTV, seeing what they've been playing, seeing how the record's been going, seeing their map vetoes. There's a seven map pool in the game of Counter-Strike. So you can take it to different maps um, and you can see teams win statistics on certain maps and how that affects their gameplay. So that's one element of preparation. The most basic element of preparation is figuring out the names of every player on every team and how to pronounce them, <laughs> which is sometimes more challenging yeah. than you would think. Yeah, in, in an international landscape, it must be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, figuring out how to say Portuguese names, figuring out how to say... And, and then sometimes you would think you know how to say a name, and then it turns out that that's not actually how they want it said. It's something completely different. Uh, one of the other things that that, that uh, is really valuable to do, especially when teams are coming from regions that you're less familiar with, is to talk to the people from those regions. You know, my network is always expanding as I meet more people, work with more people, just interact with more people online. So, for example, for the Aussie teams, anytime I'm doing a tournament with Aussie teams, I I hit up my Australian caster friends and they give me the skinny on what's going on with them and and what the update has been since I last covered them. Brazilian teams, I have people that I go talk to uh, about that because some of them are internationally competitive and we know what's going on with them. And some of them don't get to leave the region very often. And so you need the domestic gossip if you're going to know what's actually happening within a team and, and what matters. And so that's a huge asset, being able to rely on each other and to, to share knowledge. But for preparation for an event, if I'm hosting, I do a whole lot more preparation than if I'm doing play-by-play. Because as a play-by-play, while it's helpful to know as much detail about a team beforehand, you are ultimately reacting to what's on screen. Your color is hopefully getting a little bit more of that depth and analysis to flavor things. But as a play-by-play, you are much about what you are seeing before your eyes as opposed to what has come before. Uh, What has come before can inform what you're seeing before your eyes, but uh, it's still about what's unfolding in front of you. Whereas as a host, it's about building those narratives and those storylines. So that involves a lot more research into what's been happening for them, what might be next, why that flows into it, uh, so that I can properly set up my analysts and direct things in the right direction and prep with production beforehand to make sure that we have the graphics that we need to tell the stories we want to tell. 
But there are definitely times where there's been a particularly long day. There's been massive tech delays. You've been there in the studio for 12, 14 hours. You're coming up on the end of your rope. You've barely gotten any sleep the night before. You maybe got two, three hours because the next hotel room over has getting renovations. There's times where you're literally working a nocturnal sleep schedule because you're in a studio in one place and the broadcast is in a completely different continent and you're just at the end of your rope and you just kind of got to fake it till you make it. There are those moments yeah. where, you know, it's smile and hide the pain, Harold type of moments <laughs> yeah. where it's just, just survive. Hey, Mike, I have here what I hope is not a sensitive question because sure. you, you do all of this research and analysis in advance of the cast and the travel schedule and that demands compensation mm. yeah you're making a living off of this sure and i hope i might get you to talk a little bit about like how your compensation is determined who pays you like how much negotiation is involved in all that what a contracts kind of look like yeah could you talk a little bit about that yeah, I can. I will preface this by saying this is my least favorite part of my job. I am not business-minded. I do not enjoy negotiations. I do not enjoy salary talk. But it is the necessary evil to do what I love and make money doing it. So I am definitely not the most savvy or well-informed customer when it comes to this. And I freely admit that. And it's something I am working to improve about myself. But I long for the point where I make enough money that I can get an agent and not have to deal with it anymore. Yeah. Uh, not there yet, but hopefully. Hopefully soon. Yeah, hope so. The way this works primarily is I am a freelancer. There are leagues and games where people and talent work on full contract where they're signed for a year or a season or whatever it is, and they negotiated at the beginning of the year or for however many years, and then they're locked in. Counter-Strike is not like that. Counter-Strike is a free-for-all, and the reason for that is because our developer, Valve, the company that actually makes the game, has very little interest in running the esports. They're involved in one or two events a year, and that's it. So for the rest, it's third-party companies, and it's a free-for-all, and it's an open schedule. Now, what that means is we're negotiating with multiple different people in terms of work. The company that I do the vast majority of my work with is a company called ESL. They work in multiple games, but Counter-Strike is one of their tentpole games. They are the big customer within Counter-Strike. They put on events throughout the year, some of the most prestigious events. They are running the next major, which is the most prestigious event in the Counter-Strike calendar. They are who I do the vast, vast majority of my work with. When I negotiate with them, I talk to one of two points of contact, depending on the gig, basically, the, the level of the gig. For a lot of my online work, I'm talking to one person. And then for the in-person work, I'm largely talking to another and the way compensation works is along one of two lines. You're either compensated on a day rate or you're compensated on a per match rate. So the way a day rate works is pretty self-explanatory, especially if you're traveling for an event. They basically own you for the days that you're occupied doing the event, right? If you're there, you're, you're there to do the thing. You can't really do anything else with your day. So you get compensated per day. Um, and usually half that rate for travel days or rehearsal days where you're not actually on, but you're, you know, your, your time is still occupied. And then for remote work, a lot of the time, 
people will pay on a per match rate where if I'm doing a best of three, which is potentially three games, potentially two, basically who wins two out of three games, I'll get paid per best of three. And that'll be a number that is substantially less than a day rate. So the the year before the pandemic began, 2019, I had a really good year and life was great and things were on a very positive trajectory and I was working a ton and I was making good money. And then the pandemic happened and the world slowed down. Yeah. And while that was good for esports viewership numbers, it was not great for esports in-person events, which tend to pay a lot better than remote work. And so my personal income reduced. But I'm happy to say it's, it's, it's coming back up in a big way. Um, good. I'm happy to hear it. But it, it is inconsistent is the nature of contract work. Yeah. It's just kind of life as a freelancer. Yeah. How do you determine your rate? Mm. Like, do they make the offer and you make a counter offer? Do you say, this is how much I'm going to charge for this event? How much room is there for negotiation? Because these people are making gobs of money, right? Like some of these events are raking in some serious scratch. Uh, you'd be surprised. Yeah. The, 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 the secret of esports is that very few companies actually make money. It's very hard to make money at this point in esports. There's large budgets, don't get me wrong. Millions of dollars are being spent on events. But a lot of that disappears very quickly to put on events at the caliber that they need to be. So ESL is a massive company. They were recently acquired for a billion dollars to give you some perspective of the numbers at stake here. Now, that was an overpay for sure, but um, the numbers are pretty enormous. The way my negotiations work, generally speaking, is I give a number and then that number is either accepted or countered, depending on budget and depending on what someone thinks I am, my, my services are worth. And I do not have a ton of leverage yet. I do over some of the lesser tournaments where I don't really need the work. But my rate is very much determined by the standard of my peers to some degree, right? A lot of us talk about rates. It's very healthy to talk about rates. This is advice for anyone in any freelance industry. If someone wants to know what your rates are, talk to them about it. It's useful for everybody to know where everyone else is at. It generally, uh, a rising tide will raise all ships in that one. But a lot of it is determined by you know experience, seniority, how valuable you are to a broadcast. The top end guys get very large numbers and have a large ability to negotiate and determine what they want to do and how they want to be compensated and that kind of thing. But I'm sort of in that middle rung at this point where I'm moving up, but not up yet. And so my numbers are determined by budget, determined by availability. Um, and I have a number that I ask. Okay. And depending on the counter, I may just say no. Yeah. That's fair. You know, when you were talking about the compensation mm -hmm. issue, which, by the way, I'm, I'm grateful that you were willing to talk about it a bit, despite it not being your favorite thing to talk about. So so thank you for that. Sure. In, in that response, you were talking a little bit about how compensation can be contingent upon whether it's an online or an in-person live event. Maybe you could talk a bit about how casting in front of an audience is is different than casting from what I assume to be your your living room. 
Mm. I fortunately have an office, which is fortunate mostly for my girlfriend who would go insane <laughs> if I didn't have a place to close myself away while I shout at my computer. Yeah. So I've never done a proper audience. I've never done an arena show. And just to give people some perspective uh, who might not be familiar with esports and familiar with Counter-Strike, Counter-Strike will sell out an arena of 10,000. Wow. Uh, the crowds are incredible. One of the biggest events of the year uh, is is in Cologne. That that just happened back in late July, mid-July. We fill the Lanxess Arena, uh, which is the largest arena in Cologne, full. Screaming crowd, insane pyrotechnics, giant stage, the whole nine yards. Counter-Strike crowds are incredible. Yeah. I have not had the opportunity to work a, an arena event yet. I really crave the opportunity, but unfortunately my rise in the scene was concurrent enough with COVID that there's been some roadblocks and impediments to that. But that's, that's the dream for me is to at some point cast to a crowd of thousands live because that energy having talked to other people about it, having seen what the crowds are like, it's unparalleled. It's just a different experience entirely. It's, it's transcendent. But I have cast for some smaller audiences. I've had some audience interaction. Honestly, the funny thing is the biggest crowd I've ever had the opportunity to sort of play with, if that makes sense. I was in Sweden at a remote studio. They were in Valencia. So I still had some some banter with the crowd because I was showing on a giant screen there, but it was not as organic as one would hope. Yeah, yeah. So that makes it challenging. I have worked with smaller crowds. Having any sort of crowd, any sort of audience, any sort of reaction just ups the energy. It drives you to give more of yourselves. It drives you to give more of the energy. Having that real-time feedback is so huge. But for me, one of the biggest differences of casting online versus casting in studio, uh, which is most of what the traveling events I do are is about being able to actually read your co-caster the person sitting next to you who's on the broadcast with you it's so much more difficult online because you can't just have a conversation it can't just be organic you can't look at each other you can't tap each other on the shoulder you can't give hand cues for when you want to hurry up or slow down or when you want to hand off you can't joke in the same way because there's always going to be that slightly artificial break pause between two people speaking it's just it's less natural and it's more draining to me energy wise in person being there with a good co-commentator being live being seeing the players in front of you if you're in the same location as the players competing seeing them get hype on stage that becomes just this natural moment where you're not you don't have to f force anything or really intentionally give energy because you're just caught up in part of a greater thing you become part of that greater thing if you're really getting a good flow with your co-commentator if you really have an exciting game it becomes this rush and i would just imagine that with a real large live audience just magnifies that rush, that energy, that transcendence magnifies by the number of bodies that you've got there. And that really takes it from being something that is, okay, we got to turn this on to it's being turned on regardless. Like I'm, I'm, I'm on, yes. I'm there. It's happening. Yeah, man. Well, I, I, I hope and expect that you will have numerous opportunities 
to be able to cast live in front of a big, broad audience. Perhaps that full house in Cologne. It's the dream. Yeah, well, you'll achieve the dream. I know this about you. You're good like that. I'm rooting for you, Mike. I, I, I really and truly am. I, I have to share something of a vision I have with you because you were, you know, just alluding to this packed house in Cologne. Now, like I said, a conceit of this show is that I do almost no research uh, to prepare for these recorded discussions. Mm-hmm. But I'm just so profoundly ignorant that I simply had to read a bit. I watched a few Counter-Strike games. And, and I learned one thing. Yeah, My vision of that full house in Cologne is like a total sausage fest. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Mike, the Iranian parliament is more gender inclusive than esports. Uh... I, I, say, I say that to say this, like A and B. A... Hopefully, the, the future of esports has, has something to do with getting women in the mix somehow or another. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure that'll happen. I feel like it, it, it simply must. Um, but, but B, I just want to ask how, how being in such a male-dominated workplace impacts the nature of, of your work. Yeah, it's an interesting time for it in esports because it's something that I think has become a little more recognized. There's been a little bit of a reckoning with it over the course of the last year. ESL, the company I was talking about earlier, launched um, the Impact League, which is a women's only circuit, women and non-binary individuals circuit that takes teams from all over the world and gives them opportunities to compete on land against one another, which is really cool. It's been uh, a, a pretty big success early on i think i don't know if the viewership's caught up to what they're hoping it to do but the tournaments have been really cool to watch uh the teams have been very uh enjoyable to to follow along with their narratives and see them grow because there used to be a competitive women's scene in counter-strike with global events with at least one world championship a year if not several but the contraction of the scene during covid meant that they were one of the first to go in terms of events drying up because events dried up for everybody, but they dried up most severely for the women's scene. So a lot of teams and players um, transitioned to another game, to Valorant, which has made a more dedicated emphasis in emergence onto the scene of being inclusive, of having opportunities for, uh, for women, which is great. And we've been a little slow to catch up for sure. Very slow to catch up, to be quite frank. But these opportunities have seen greater growth. Talking about esports more broadly, one of the biggest issues that you have in competitive games in terms of female representation is a greater societal problem, which is that in most countries, established gender norms say that girls aren't supposed to play video games when they're little girls and kids. That's that's a boy's thing, is the gender norm, as it is. Uh, I know that was true for a lot of us growing up. I know that was true for my girlfriend growing up. She never really had access to video games when she was a kid. Turns out she loves them. She's gotten really into playing and gaming over the course of the last couple of years. Turns out dating me is, is a little bit of a gateway drug into video games. Who knew? <laughs> um, but this is something that I think is changing, but is changing slowly. I think it's a very different for the current generation. You might actually have better perspective on this than I do, teaching 
kids, but it feels to me like a lot more young girls and young women are playing games with their peers, playing Fortnite, playing Call of Duty, playing Genshin Impact, playing whatever it is. And that's become a lot more accepted and even cool. Whereas for people of my generation, I know friends of mine, peers who were bullied in high school for playing games and stopped as a result of it to try and fit in uh, and then rediscovered it later in life. But if you think about esports, right, you have to have the absolute best of the best of competition. When you don't have the same opportunities to actually play the game. If you stop playing the game for four years because you're getting bullied in high school, or if you never start playing the game until you're later in life, you just haven't had the time on task, hours on hand to, to perfect your craft. And that's all coupled with being a much lower player base in general because, frankly, in competitive games, they're very non-welcoming to women a lot of the time, especially if it's a game where you need teammates, where you have competitive voice chat. People are awful edgy kids and teenagers and, and and just people in general can be terrible and toxic and it's particularly directed towards women you know the the, the number of times uh you're playing with with a woman and some random person in voice chat just immediately jumps to sexism or creepiness or just heinous remarks it just it doesn't make people want to come back and play and so it creates a non-welcoming environment. So again, fewer women are encouraged to play. And with that reduced talent pool, with that reduced number of people playing, you naturally don't have the same people emerge in terms of skill level. So that's the giant overarching societal issue that leads to fewer women in esports that I think is slowly but surely changing, hopefully. I think you know more, more women and girls are finding welcoming spaces within gaming. It's definitely still not good. It is better than it was. It's not good, though. But then within esports, uh, within my workplace, which is broadcast, we're also seeing um, some change, which is that companies have recognized that they need to do better with it and create opportunities and recognize that, you know, having eight white guys on a broadcast maybe isn't the move. Yeah, maybe not. So we are seeing a lot more women involved in broadcast. Uh, there's there's a lot more opportunities. There are some really talented colleagues of mine who uh, you know have stepped into broadcasting roles, into hosting, into uh, interviewing, into analyst work. Nowadays, it is very rare to see a broadcast in esports without at least one female face on it. Uh, it's definitely not an even divide. So I think things are improving. It's obviously not flawless. I mean, you're talking about the crowd. Crowds are overwhelmingly male still. But again, that is changing. Whether it's just people bringing significant others and showing them what this thing is that they love or whether it's, I mean, I know a lot of women who are just Counter-Strike fanatics at this point who are fans, who play the game, who follow the game, who love the events. I think that the general bent of time is positive for it. But I do think that making moves to intentionally be better and intentionally be a more welcoming place is also something that we need to continue to do as a community to to foster it. And I think one of the best things about having women's events right now, right, having things like the Impact League, is that it creates role models for girls who are in middle school and high school now who are playing and don't necessarily see themselves reflected in competition. It gives them something to look for to say, oh, I can do this. I can pursue this. You know, I'm really fucking good at the game. 
you know, who, who say, I, I am good at this. You know, I don't care if, if, you know, sometimes when I load into a game, someone's going to be an asshole to me. I'm good at this and I'm going to keep being good at this and I'm going to pursue it and see what I can make of it. And, uh, and that's something when I see it, that is something that, that brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the landscape of that. I, I really appreciate it. And, and I, I trust that a more gender inclusive landscape is going to be part of the future of, of esports. I guess I can't help but wonder what Mike Winnick's vision for the future of esports looks like. Mm. And like, what does that look like? And how do you see your work evolving with it? One of the biggest problems to solve right now for esports in general is something that I alluded to earlier, which is that nobody's making any money as a company, especially not teams. It's very difficult to figure out the profitable model. Uh, there's a lot of investment money being spent, a lot of VC money being spent without a lot of returns. And it's a future bet. It's very much a future bet. And I think it's a smart future bet, but we at some point have to actualize that future and confront it and make it reality which I think growing player bases, growing viewership will help alleviate that, help fix that. Because one of the issues you have right now of an esports team as opposed to a sports team is that a sports team has a physical location. They have a stadium where they sell tickets. And that is a huge amount of revenue. They sell tickets, they sell concessions, they sell merchandise at that venue. Esports teams don't really have that. One league attempted to do that and then promptly folded on it. So teams are making money in esports off of sponsorships and off of merchandise. And that's kind of where it's at. And then prize winnings to some degree pretty much should go just to the players from top end teams. So that doesn't really make the money. Some leagues have like franchising payouts where the media rights or some aspect of it actually does get kicked back into the teams. But you compare the, the salary and overhead and the people that they're paying and the, the, the expenses that they're incurring, it rarely beats uh expenses right now some of the biggest esports teams in the world who are now publicly traded and so have to post their financials are posting losses of tens of millions of dollars a year mm. it's a future bet so that issue needs to be solved i don't know yes. if i'm the one to do that since again <laughs> aforementioned bad at the business side of things um, yeah, yeah. But I think that the the exciting thing from my perspective in terms of broadcast is I think the audience is only growing, especially for Counter Strike. It's a twenty year old game. Every year, someone says this is the year that CS dies. Some other games coming out, taking its viewership, taking its player base, yada yada yada. But the reality is, if you build a good enough game, which Counter Strike is, it's transcendent, right? It's like soccer. It's like baseball. Counter-Strike is still here, and every year it feels like we beat our concurrent player numbers, which are the number of players playing the game at once. We set new records for that, and we set new viewership records for our biggest tournaments, for our majors. So the eSport is growing, and the player base is growing, and as long as those two things continue on a positive trajectory, I think ultimately the future is bright, right? Audiences are going to be bigger. More events are going to be sustainable. The people who are right now... 18 to 22 who love the game who watch the game but don't have any money to spend who don't have any disposable income they'll become 25 to 30 year olds and they'll have 
disposable income suddenly and be a much more valuable clientele. It's already becoming that way. Esports audiences are massively valuable advertising wise because it's a lot of young single men who tend to have a lot of disposable income that they don't know what to do with. So it's a very valuable advertising niche. And I think that as that audience develops and diversifies as well, as it ages a little bit as well, as we get more just generations that are involved in it, I think the needle's up. I think the needle's very up for esports. I'm very bullish. I think that there's a lot to be excited for. So, Mike, I think you have every reason to to be bullish. And I think you're right. Uh, the needle is pointing up. And I'm pretty sure it's pointing up for you and your career. I, I trust that that's the case. I got a lot of faith in you. Before we drive the train into the station here, I want to look back with you a bit and then look forward with you. So let's look back. Like, you've been doing this for a few years, and the world has changed quite a bit in the time since you started casting. But how has your thinking about your work changed since you started casting? One of the things about my industry and about casting and about esports in general is that there are no clear paths. It's not like a more traditional career where you know, you can ask somebody, how did you get to this point? If somebody's a, a lawyer, you can say, what did you do to get to the point that you're at? And they'll tell you, I went to this school and I took an internship here and I clerked for this judge. And you can replicate maybe not those exact paths, but similar ones. And you can find yourself at a similar place in life. You can't do that in esports because there just isn't a defined path. <laughs> There's not a trail to walk. It's more like you're bushwhacking through the underbrush. What worked for the person who came before you will not work for you because the world of esports is rapidly different inside of two years, inside of five years, inside of 10 years. It's not even recognizable for what it was before. So everyone is kind of finding their own path. You can get advice. You can get bits and pieces. You can look to the people who came before you. Uh, and I'm sure that as time goes on, things will even out. But when I started out, I had no idea what my path forward was. And I sort of found it. That uh, next big casters challenge that I talked to you about way at the beginning of this podcast, I was the second person to ever win it because it was the second time it had ever been run. Um, <laughs> so my vision of esports and my understanding of what I do has changed so much just as my career has gone on and as different twists and turns have come in. When I first started out and I discovered that this is something I really enjoyed, I remember talking to my parents and saying, I'm going to give this two years of doing it concurrent with my job, right? Of working and doing this on the side. And if at the end of that two years, I see a real path forward to make this my thing, I'm going to go with it. It only took me about a year and a half to go full time within that time span. So it was definitely my path forward. But at first, I, you know, I had no idea if this was something I could actually do. I was still figuring that out. I was still discovering that, still discovering the ways to do that. And I still am. There's always new avenues to explore. There's always new things to develop. And I mean, in this last year, I've transitioned from primarily being a caster to primarily being a host. I'm doing a lot more of the hosting. I love the hosting, really enjoying that new journey. And I think that as my career goes on, it's going shift to shift more and more, both with the ecosystem, both with what I see and with my perspective within the scene. I've only been in the industry for five years, but now instead of being the fresh face up and comer, I'm the journeyman. I'm not quite the veteran, 
We're not there yet. Give it another two years, I guess. I don't know how long that'll take. Yeah. But it's a very different place within the ecosystem. Well, maybe maybe you could talk about this a little bit. Like, what are your greatest ambitions as a caster? Like, what's the dream? What's the, the equivalent of the Super Bowl for you? The real dream right now is to do an event for a, an, an arena audience. If I do that, then I will be happy. I need that feeling of working a live audience, of working a jam-packed arena full of energy. That's the dream for me. Now, more holistically, I mean, I just want to keep being able to live off of this. It's wild to me that I can. It's wild to me that anyone pays me to do what I do. Every time I think about that for a little while, it's still absurd to me that uh, I should get paid for this. I want to, I love traveling for events. I love working with the people that I work with. I love being in person with a bunch of like-minded individuals, smart, witty, funny people who love the thing that I love and love to talk about it. I, I want more and more of that. I've been very fortunate to travel to a lot of studio events this year. I've spent a great deal of time in Sweden and in Poland. I've spent some time traveling and doing events and I want to do more of that. I want to continue to grow that. So if I get to a point where you know, I'm working 100 days out of the year, 150 days out of the year in person. I will be thrilled. That's that's sort of the dream for me. Well, I wish it for you, Mike. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to share that dream with us. And that should be enough. But before we go, would you be so kind as to share two stories could you please share first the story of a professional failure and then temper that with a story of triumph? One of the interesting things about what I do is that you don't always get a lot of actionable feedback because there's three channels through which feedback can really come. One is the audience. They're either writing in Twitch chat or writing on Twitter or writing on Reddit. And they, by and large, have two paths. They either go extremely positive. Oh, my God, we love this. Who's this guy? This is fantastic. He's my favorite caster. I love this. Or you're terrible. You're shit. Go die. I'm going to threaten your family. Like the, just the, the complete polar opposite. This person's terrible. They should never be on a microphone again. It's not useful. You can't take what Reddit is telling you and actually work on specific <laughs> things about yourself because Reddit is telling you 50 million contradicting things. Yeah. You can get feedback from your production, the people who are hiring you, which if they're willing to give it is super helpful. But in my experience, they're not always willing to give it. I think that there's a fear that talent, as we're described in the scene, broadcasters are fragile baby people. And that if you tell them they did something wrong, they might just crumble. And maybe that's true for some of us. It's definitely not true for me. I would yeah. appreciate actionable feedback more often. Uh, and sometimes you get a really good producer who will tell you, you did this right, you did this wrong, here's something you can do to improve it. That is the most valuable thing in the scene. So useful to have that kind of actionable feedback. So the best avenue for feedback is actually from your peers, from the people who are working with you, your co-casters, your uh, analysts, people who are on desk with you. And some people are more willing to be honest about it than others. 
because again, this is a weird relationship where you're friends, but you're also colleagues and you're also competitors because you're frequently competing for the same job. So it's, it's always a little bit of a social dance in that regard. That's the most useful method for feedback. So first, that's how you determine failures and successes in the industry. It's a little bit like reading the tea leaves sometimes. The biggest immediate failure that I can remember was very early on in my career. It was at the second big event I ever did, the second Fragadelphia, Fragadelphia 11. The first time I actually got brought on to be part of that Fragadelphia as opposed to showing up to do it myself. And so I was very much the newbie, very much the fresh face, very much still figuring out what was going on. And I was doing some casting. And the other guys who were doing casting at that event were three guys, Bach, uh, Scrawny, Topical, where they're in game names. All fantastic guys, super, super lucky to work with them, admire all of them. But I was doing some casting with Scrawny, who's a guy about my age, a little younger, had been working a couple years before, really good, brilliantly talented broadcaster. He's recently staked his claim as one of the best play-by-plays in the game, in esports in general, if not just Counter-Strike. I really love his work, admire his work. Even back then, years ago, he was a force. You know, anyone who worked with him, anyone who listened to him knew he was a force and knew he was going to keep being a force. So early on, we did a we did a cast and it was great. It went great. We did one game. It was fantastic. We had a lot of fun with it. It was fantastic. And I was riding this high and I was supposed to rotate off. I had done two games in a row, two best of threes in a row, which is, you know, anywhere from four to six hours potentially. So I'd been on and live for a while, which drains you. It takes a lot of energy to do broadcasts. It's very concentrated energy expenditure. Yeah. You realistically need breaks. But I was new enough in my career that I didn't really know my own limitations or limits. I knew I was start, sort of hungry and sort of tired and I was supposed to swap out. But the next game that was coming up was going to be one of the biggest games of the tournament in that it had two really hotly anticipated teams facing off. The viewership was expected to be massive. It was the hot matchup. So I was supposed to go off for it. But the guy who was supposed to replace me was kind of napping a little bit. And he said, you know, I don't really need to do this game. If you want to stay on, you can stay on. Uh-huh. And me, being <laughs> relatively new and not recognizing that I really should swap off, and this was probably a bad idea, said, yeah, hell yeah, I'll do it. I was riding the high of the last game. I knew I was, I'm hot shit. I'm the best at this. I'm going to be great. Oh, no. I wasn't. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> It was about halfway through the broadcast when I started to realize that I was really not doing a great job. I was repeating myself a little bit. I was too hype too constantly, which is a very fine balance to strike. You have to have the low moments to have the high moments. You have to thread the narrative very well. And I was just definitely not hitting my notes. And chat knew it. I could see that people were not happy about it. Who the hell is this guy? There were like 16,000 people watching, which was far and away the largest I had cast to at that point. Uh, and they were not having a good time. And of course, that early on in my career as well, as soon as I see that there's not, they're not having a good time, then I'm in my head and I'm doing worse as a result of that. It was just not good. It was a big moment yeah. that could have been an early establisher that I completely blew <sighs> because I was tired. I was hungry i was just drained of energy and i shouldn't have probably stayed on there but i was cocky and i thought i'd be fine and i didn't yet have the endurance that i have nowadays where even in those moments where i'm tired and drained i can be at least baseline fine i wasn't there yet i didn't have those skills built up i could feel it being bad yeah yeah well let's temper that failure with a story of triumph i'm sure there are many would you be so kind as to share one? 
Yeah. There's no better feeling than when you come off after knowing you absolutely just kill the broadcast. You just kill the cast, kill the segment. One moment of recent great triumph was an event I did at the beginning of this year. It's an event called IEM Katowice. It is one of the two big tentpole crown jewel events in the ESL calendar. It takes place in Katowice, Poland, which if you've never heard of, that's fine. It's a <laughs> tiny town in Poland. It's like a coal mining town. It is not a glorious place outside of being a weirdly an esports hub because uh, Katowice recognized that maybe they need to pivot away from coal mining. And so they've been making themselves as attractive as possible to esports. So I was brought on to be a host for the B stream, which I had only started hosting in the end of September of the previous year. Uh, and this was February, I think. Yeah, end of February was this event. And Katowice is an event that I've wanted to be a part of since I started talking about Counter-Strike. It's one of the crown jewel events, one of the big events of the year. It is an amazing event to be a part of. Now, I wasn't part of the arena portion of it. I was part of the first portion, the group portion, which was in studio. But it was still such a such a triumph for me because I was working with, you know, the, the, the people that I talked about as being on my Mount Rushmore of, of broadcasters. Uh, I was there with the players, players whose games I've been watching for years from the get-go, from the jump, and being part of that broadcast and being part of that desk and helming that desk and getting really positive feedback from people who I admire so much was uh, was just a, a an amazing moment. And it really did kick off a, a pretty damn good year so far in my career. And so for me, that that yeah, that was a that was a pretty triumphant moment. That was a pretty cool moment. That's awesome, man. And and thanks for sharing it. Mike, it's been really cool to kind of learn about this new landscape. Like I said, I don't know much about the esports world. I feel like I know infinitely more than I knew an hour or two ago. I'm grateful for it. I'd also be grateful for a recommendation to our listeners of something that somehow or another illustrates or influences your work. Would you be so kind as to maybe share something with me? It could be anything. I think the thing I'd love to share with your audience is to check out uh, an esports competition, preferably CS, if you know what's good for you, if you know what's right, <laughs> anything. If you see that there's something happening in your city, in your town or the next town over, something that's relatively easily accessible, a tournament, a match, an arena event, something, just go. Check it out. Even if you have no idea how the game works, just just go experience it once because i think there's a lot of people who don't get it until they're there and then as soon as you're there and you're in person and you feel the energy and you watch the competition it clicks it's it's a human experience to be a part of a crowd like that to be a part of an event like that and so my strong recommendation is if you see an opportunity just go tickets are frequently really cheap for esports events in comparison to other you know, large scale competitions. They're very accessible. It's usually a really good time. Go check it out. You might have fun. You might enjoy yourself. You might discover a new passion that you never would have thought to even try. So that's my recommendation. I love it. It's perfectly appropriate. And I guarantee you there are some people out there who are going to heed your advice. One of those people is me. I'm totally game. How could I not? And of course, I'm going to try to get to some event that you're casting because, you know, 
I'm a fanboy of you, Mike Winnick. Darf Mike, you've bushwhacked through the underbrush with us. You've broadcasted with this narrow caster, and I couldn't be more grateful to have shared this space with you, to have learned about your work, to have reconnected with you. I have enjoyed every waking second of it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I enjoy this podcast a lot and uh, really happy to have been a part of it. And there you have it, my friends. That was me in conversation with the inimitable Mike Winnick, a.k.a. Darf Mike. I've linked to a bunch of the stuff that Mike and I talked about in the show notes to this podcast. I hope, like me, you'll take Mike's friendly advice and go to an esports event at your earliest convenience. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to do your part to share these conversations with real working people, do me a favor. Just take a second and think about your favorite episode. Could be an old studs episode, could be a more recent for a living episode. Maybe you like the guest. You know, maybe the work intrigued or somehow mystified you. Maybe the conversation just somehow left a mark on you. Whatever the case may be, here's what you do. Just think about a person in your life who might share this interest. Copy the link and send the episode to that person. There. That's what you can do. You could help me. You could help them. And you could feel good that you did something to help two people just by sharing the link to a podcast. Yeah. That'll do it. I think Tony Gonzalez was on to something. I should have more of these conversations with people with rare kind of funky jobs. I'm into it. Learning a ton. I got to get it together, though, y'all. I don't even know who's on this podcast next week. I want to be able to say at the end of the episode, like, tune in next week for, you know. But I don't know who's going to be on next week. I got some ideas, though. I got some ideas. I'll work it out. You don't worry about me. You just tune in next week it'll be great until then please take care pretty please with sugar on top